Now, there are a number of misconceptions about the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, many people think that it is a cold book, that it is simply a book of weird and strange laws that really have no uh, relevance for modern society, and we can agree that there are some strange things in there. Uh, but then there are other people who say, well, that's really Old Testament stuff. We don't really need to focus on that now since we are in the New Testament, right? Uh, both of these approaches are wrong, and when we come to Deuteronomy, we need to recognize first off that it, this is the inspired word of God. It is here for our instruction. It is here for our edification. It is here to build us up, even as Christians who are living in the New Covenant age. And so what I'd like to do just to introduce uh, Deuteronomy for us is simply to go through seven reasons why we ought to study the book of Deuteronomy. Hopefully, th these are simply things that I, uh, came to me uh, as I was thinking through this topic. You can add more to them, but this is my list of, of seven here, seven reasons to study Deuteronomy. First off, it's pastoral. The book of Deuteronomy is not a cold book. Uh, it is not devoid of emotion. What's remarkable is that Deuteronomy is actually a series of four speeches or sermons by Moses which are emotional and which are in which he is pleading for the Israelites to stay uh, obedient to the Lord. This is a pastoral, this is a warm book, and we ought to read it as such. We should not uh, think of it as a cold book. Number two, it's a call to faithfulness. The people of Israel were on the east of the Jordan, about to go into the promised land. And from cover to cover of this book, it is a call to be faithful to the Lord and his commandments and his uh, statutes. And as I think through um, our society, we have a need to be faithful today. There are so many things that can pull us away. The Israelites, when they were going into the land, they had the gods of the land. They had all the practices that could bring them away from the Lord, and so they needed to remain faithful. The same is true for us. We have uh, an increasingly godless uh, culture. Uh, in many respects, it's, uh, it's always been uh, that way, but it seems like it is increasingly so. And so we need to pay attention to the call to faithfulness within the book of Deuteronomy. Thirdly, it's a call to courage. Again, they're about to go into the promised land. They're about to go into the land of Canaan, but the problem is Canaan isn't empty, right? They have foes there. They have strong and mighty foes that they are going to have to go and fight, and they are going to need courage to go and win those battles. They would know that the Lord uh, would fight for them, but they still had to go and engage in the battle. They had to carry their swords and go in. They needed the courage to trust the Lord in the fights ahead. And again, as we think about our own context, as we consider the attacks upon the church, as we consider uh, the attacks upon uh, Christianity, it's all too easy to remain silent. It's all too easy to cave in. We have a need to be courageous. We have a need to trust the Lord in what he has spoken, and to be courageous in this time. Number four, it reveals God to us. There is so much in the book of Deuteronomy that reveals God to us. It reveals his kindness. It reveals his steadfastness, his loyalty. It reveals his holiness. It reveals his judgment. It reveals his jealousy. We need to know the God that we worship, and Deuteronomy helps us in that. So much of the God, uh, so much of what we know 
about the God that we serve comes from the Old Testament, and so much of it comes from Deuteronomy. And so we need to pay attention to this book. It is not irrelevant. Fifthly, it demonstrates the weight of sin. It demonstrates the weight of sin through a few ways. You can look at all the specific laws, and within the specific laws, there are judgments if you break the laws, right? There are consequences to that. And it demonstrates the high view of God and the weight of sin. It also demonstrates the weight of sin in detailing out what happened to Israel when they failed. There were massive consequences to their sin. So if we think of sin lightly, all we need to do is go back to the book of Deuteronomy and get a fresh taste of how God views sin. Sixthly, it explains what love is, and that might surprise you in a book of laws, but it's not only a book of laws, it's a book of love. So much of what Deuteronomy is, is teaching us how to love God. And so much of what loving God is, is obeying him, obeying his commandments. This is love, that you keep his commandments and that his commands are not burdensome to you. He has put those commands in there for Israel for their good. And so the book of Deuteronomy explains what true love is. It's not just an emotion, it's not just a feeling, but it's loyalty in its service to the Lord. And finally, number seven, it looks to the future. It was written there in 1406 BC. They're about to cross into Sinai, or they're about to cross into Canaan. They're on the east of Jordan. And it speaks of time that has already happened. It spoke of the new covenant, which we know that Christ has inaugurated. But it also looks past that time. It looks to times yet future to us. And so we can glean a great deal about what is to come in the future by studying the book of Deuteronomy. So again, these are just seven that came to my mind as I was thinking through this. You can add more to it. But what I'd like to do today is look at the need to knows for the book of Deuteronomy. What are the three things that you need to know about for the book of Deuteronomy as we go into this study for the next 12 weeks? Now, at this point, I would encourage you to take notes. Because much of the material that we're going to be covering today is going to be useful and necessary for you uh, in the weeks to come. And I'll try my level best uh, to make it accessible for taking notes. Uh, you'll have to be the judge of whether that is uh, uh, successful or not. But uh, I, I would encourage you to take notes. And so we are looking this morning at the three need-to-knows of the book of Deuteronomy. The first thing that you need to know is the context. The second thing is going to be the purpose. You need to know the purpose of the book. And then thirdly, that we'll look at today is the application. How do we apply the book of Deuteronomy and also the law of Moses to our lives as Christians? Remember, we are not Israel, we are the church. And so we need to understand when we're reading this, how do we then apply it to our lives rather than just saying that's irrelevant? So those are the three need-to-knows that we'll look at this morning. So the first thing that we're going to look at now is the context. Now, along the way, this will not only be information, but the context will actually help us see how God has organized his book, and it will actually reveal something to us about God uh, in this, and some of that's pretty cool. So we're going to look at the context, and we're going to be looking at two types of context here. The first is the biblical context. Where does Deuteronomy fit within the narrative of the Bible? What has happened before this? in order to lead us to Deuteronomy. And then the cultural context, what is going on around the world uh, that helps us understand what the book of Deuteronomy is about. So that's where we're going. 
So let's take a look at the biblical context, and what we'll look at here is seven steps, seven steps that are going to lead us to the book of Deuteronomy. The first thing that we need to know about then in the biblical context is the Abrahamic covenant. We need to know something about this. The Abrahamic covenant, you can see this show up in the book of Genesis. It shows up in chapter 12 a little bit, but really significantly in Genesis chapter 15. And there are three primary features of the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord promised that he would give to Abraham land, seed, that is offspring, and blessing. So those are the three features of the Abrahamic covenant. And if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 15, and we will look at this. If you remember, Genesis, uh, Abraham began in the land of Chaldees, of, uh, there in Ur, that's modern-day Iraq. It's near the Persian Gulf. And you remember that he and his family, including his father, went up into Haran, and Haran is where Terah, that's Abraham's father, died. And somewhere around that point, the Lord revealed himself to Abraham and told him to go into a land in which he, was, he would show him and that he would make a great nation of him and that he would be a blessing to the nations. And then we see in Genesis chapter 15, the real uh, covenant taking place, the ceremony, the, the ratification of the covenant taking place here in Genesis chapter 15. And we won't read all of it, but I want to direct your attention specifically to the land portion of the Abrahamic covenant. We can kind of dismiss this as unimportant, but the land to the people of Israel was vital. This was their litmus test for faithfulness. If they were in the land, then they were still experiencing God's blessing. If they were exiled, they had received judgment. The land is so critical to the people of Israel, and it's critical for understanding the book of Deuteronomy. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. And uh, it, it's at this point that the Lord reveals himself to Abraham. Abraham is going to cut those pieces of the animals in half, right? And he's going to separate them. It's part of a covenant ceremony. And the idea would be, generally, that the two parties would walk between the pieces and say, I'll uphold the covenant, and if I don't, these animal pieces, that's going to be me, right? Uh, it, it was a, a stark uh, recognition of the uh, severity and, and the importance of the covenant. But in this case, the Lord puts Abraham to sleep, and he goes in through it himself. So read with me verses 12 on. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. What's remarkable about this is that God is telling Abraham, you are going to inherit the land, but not yet. There's actually going to be 400 years of a delay. And we'll get to uh, why that delay is a little bit further down. But there's going to be a delay. And your offspring, they're going to be sojourners in a different land. And we know that that takes place when Israel is in Egypt. <clears throat> but notice verse 14, But I will bring about uh, judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And again, this takes place uh, in the Exodus. Verse 15, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. So he's reiterating that there's going to be a delay. 
you're not going to receive it personally, but your offspring will in the fourth generation, 400 years from now. And notice the explicit reason for why this is. For, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Amorites, that's a catch-all term of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. You have Canaanites, and that's a catch-all term. Amorites also is a catch-all term for all the people groups that are there in the land of Canaan. In essence, what God is saying is, I am not willing at this point to exact vengeance. I'm not willing at this point to pour out my wrath and my judgment upon this people. He's going to give them 400 years to turn and to repent. But as we know, 400 years later, the Lord is going to use Israel to come in and bring about his judgment on this people. And then notice in 17, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Uh, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. What land is he speaking about? Where is he sojourning? He's sojourning in the land of Canaan. And God is saying, this land that you're standing on, this land I'm going to give you. And then notice also how specific these dimensions are. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So you've got geographical landmarks here. Verse 19, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so this is that first piece, this is that first step that we need to understand about Deuteronomy, is the significance of the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of the land. Now again, it may not seem much to you and I, but as we go forward in the story, you will see time and time again how many times the authors of Scripture point back to the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we will need to keep that Uh, in mind. So the second step then in the biblical context is their time in Egypt. Okay, so if you remember, Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a son. His name was Jacob. And for each of those, God reaffirmed the covenant to them. The same covenant that he gave to Abraham, he reaffirmed to his sons. And then if you remember, Jacob had how many sons? Twelve, right? So he had twelve sons, and one of those was Joseph, and we were even talking about Joseph this morning in Sunday school. And Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers into Egypt. But there the Lord prospered him, and he became second in command, and the Lord used him to uh, protect uh, really the known world from disaster. The Lord let let Joseph know that there was going to be a famine, and so they prepared, and they stored up all this grain, But the rest of the world experienced a depletion of of grain. And so if you remember, Abraham's family, or or, uh, Jacob's family at that point, needed to go into Egypt to get grain. And when they found out that uh, Joseph was second in command there, the whole family moved into Egypt. And they were treated royally because Joseph was second in command and had saved the nation from, from great disaster. And so they spent their time in, uh, in Egypt, but we also find out what? In Exodus chapter 1, those tragic words, that there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Right? And at that point, there began 400 years of bondage, 400 years of slavery of the people of Israel. And yet, 
That was not outside of God's purview. Remember, he told Abraham in advance, this is going to take place. And so that is their time in Egypt. So you have the Abrahamic covenant. That's our first step. Second step is their time in Egypt. The third step is the Exodus. And so at that point, remember that the Lord raised up Moses to be a deliverer, brought Israel out of Egypt through uh, the 10 plagues. And uh, you have everything that went on there. The fourth step then is the covenant at Sinai. If you remember, after the Exodus, the Lord took them east into the Sinai Peninsula and specifically to Mount Sinai. And it's there that he gave them the law. The first time he gave them the law, this first generation of Israelites out of Egypt. And he gave them the law and he made a covenant with them. And if you would, turn with me to Exodus 19, 4 through 6. If you're thinking in terms of um, significant passages in the development of the narrative of Scripture, you'll want to remember Exodus 19, 4 through 6. This is very significant because it gets to a little bit of what the nation of Israel was supposed to be and do if they obeyed the covenant that the Lord had given them. And we'll actually start uh, in verse 1 there, Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. And what follows in verses 4 through 6 can appropriately be called the national charter of Israel. This is what they were supposed to be as a nation. So read with me. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, notice the three things that will happen. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth, for all the earth is mine. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what Israel would be if they obeyed the covenant. They would be a representative people. They would be a kingdom of priests. Priests represent God to the people and the people to God. And that's what Israel was supposed to be. They were set in the middle of the world and they were supposed to mediate God's blessings to the nations and they would be the place where the nations would come in order to commune and have fellowship with the Lord. They were supposed to be that mediatorial, they were supposed to be that representative people if they were to obey the covenant. It doesn't do much good if the representative people becomes just like all the nations. So that is the covenant at Sinai. He gives them the law. And so the fifth step here in the biblical, biblical context is they're traveling from Sinai to Canaan. They spent a year at Sinai learning the law, all of that, and then they set out to go into Canaan to receive the land that God had promised to them. And they make their way up to Kadesh Barnea, and we read that earlier uh, this morning. And remember what they did there at Kadesh Barnea. That's right outside of the land of Canaan. And what did they do? They sent out 12 spies into the land. And how many of them brought back a favorable report? Two. The other 10 said, they're giants, we're grasshoppers, we're going to be crushed, right? And the report of those 10 convinced the entire nation 
it's pretty explicit in the text, all the nation to go back to Egypt. They took steps to this end. They appointed a leader to take them back to Egypt. And, and you think about what does that mean? This was high-handed rebellion against God. What they were saying was, God, we liked it better when you were not involved. We liked it better before you came in and messed with our business. We liked it better. We liked life better without you. And so they turned and they went back to Egypt. And the Lord said, no, that's not going to happen. The Lord's appropriate response was judgment. And he said, not a single one of you are going to enter into my promised land. And you'll remember that he told them, 40 years you're going to wander in the wilderness. And that's our sixth step, their wilderness wanderings. In the wilderness wanderings, they spend 40 years until every single Israelite of that first generation died because of their rebellion against the Lord. Everyone 20 years and up. And so it would be their children that would be the second generation of Israel who would receive Deuteronomy and who would be the ones to go into the land of promise. And so you have all of that first generation dying out. And so the seventh step to get us to the book of Deuteronomy then is now you have the second generation of Israelites and God tells them, all right, now it's time. Now I'm going to bring you into the land. And so make your way to the east of the Jordan. Remember, the Jordan River is what separates Israel from the land of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And so he says, go to the east of the Jordan because you're going to have to be there and you're going to need to be prepared. So you're not going to go in quite yet, but you're going to be there and you're going to be prepared. And if you remember along the way, they meet two kings, Sihon and Og, and the Lord gives them over to the Israelites and gives them their land as sort of a down payment for the land that would come. And so that gets us to the book of Deuteronomy. That's where we're at. That's where the Israelites are at when now Moses is going to speak these words. And so with that background, let's turn to Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 5, and I'll try to pick out the, um, the themes that we've looked at in this. So notice these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. So already we have who's speaking, right? Moses. This is going to be addressed an address by Moses. We have the recipients. Moses spoke to all Israel. And we have the location. Where are they? Beyond the Jordan. And they're going to be in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, Dizahav. And it is 11 days journey from Horeb, by the way of Mount Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. And then notice in verse 3, we get the timing of this. When did this take place? In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month. Is that significant? In the 40th year? In the 40th year of what? When they should have gone into Canaan the first time, but refused. Now it has been 40 years. Every single Israelite of that first generation has died. And now it is the second generation who is going to hear the words of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> notice as well that Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. So even though Moses is the one speaking, guess whose words are they really? That didn't really make sense. <laughs> whose words? Yeah, you get it, right? They're the Lord's words. And so even though Moses is speaking them, 
And notice in verse 4 that we have another timing uh, indication. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, and in Edre. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. And that gets to what the book Deuteronomy means. Deuteronomy means second law. And it's not really a second law, but it's an explanation of the first law. And they are going to need to have the law explained to them because they're the second generation of Israelites. All right. Let me bring this uh, into application for a little bit. What I find striking about this is that over more than 400 years, the Lord remembered his covenant with Abraham. And you think about in 400 years, how much sin took place in the people of Israel. And yet the Lord says, I'm going to be faithful to my covenant. Yahweh is the faithful God, despite the sins of his people. And that should give us great encouragement because we still sin a great deal, and yet the Lord is going to be faithful to his covenant. And as we'll see, we have a far greater covenant than the people of Israel had here. All right, so that is the biblical context. Now, what we need to know as well is sort of the cultural context. And this is actually, in my mind, this is really cool. And it tells us something about how God is portrayed in the book of Deuteronomy. So, The book of Deuteronomy is structured, it's organized like a covenant document, okay? And in a covenant, oftentimes this took place between a big king, so that would be called a suzerain, and a little king, which we call vassals. And so a suzerain is a a big king that has charge over littler kings, right? Um, You can imagine in uh, the Babylonian Empire, and at some point, right, they had control over Israel. And so in that case, Babylon would be the suzerain and Israel would be the vassal. All right, now, each of the, uh, these covenants would have several components to them. And these show up in all these different covenants that we see in the ancient world. We have several of them, and it's really cool to be able to compare them. But this is significant because it shows us that Deuteronomy is structured like a covenant, in which case, the suzerain would be God. He is the big king. And whereas we, or the Israelites, would be the vassals. They are the ones who needed to give devotion to the Lord. And so let me just list off the different components here for you. Uh, And I will also give you the references in Deuteronomy. And we're going to be kind of following the structure as we go along. And so this would be a good thing to take down in your notes. The first thing would be a preamble. It's just explaining... uh, what parties are involved, and we see the preamble in what we just read, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. And then the second section of these covenants would be a historical prologue. Now, a historical prologue would detail everything that the suzerain and the vassal, all their dealings with each other. And generally, what it was meant for was so that the big king would say, look at everything that I've done for you. Now, let this be motivation to keep the covenant that we have. And we see the historical prologue in chapters one through four. And then finally, in any covenant, you would have stipulations, you would have commands, you would have obligations to follow. And in in these ancient covenants, that could be tribute, 
Uh, it could be loyalty. Don't go to other nations for protection. Stay loyal to me. And you would see that in those covenants. And we see the stipulations starting in chapter 5 and going all the way to chapter 26 of Deuteronomy. And then you would also have a provision for deposit. Okay, So you would deposit this covenant document into the temple. And what they would be required to do is take it out periodically and read it. Again, you're forgetful people. We're forgetful people. And we need to be reminded. And so this was to help this uh, vassal nation, don't, don't forget your, your obligations. And we have that in chapter 31, verses 9 through 13. Then you would have a list of witnesses. And in the ancient uh, covenants, it would be normally their gods and goddesses of the pantheon that they served. Now, God doesn't recognize any other gods, and so he's going to do something a little bit different. But regardless... He has his own way of having witnesses. And you can see the witnesses in chapter 30, verse 19, 31, verse 19, and then 31, verse 26. 30, 19, 31, 19, and 26. And then finally, what you would have are the curses and blessings. And so what this means is, here is what you can expect from me if you keep your obligations. This is what I'll do for you. On the flip side... The curses are, here's what you can expect if you fail to uphold the obligations. Uh, Oftentimes that's, we're going to come in and destroy your city uh, if you don't uh, keep your obligations. And what's really fascinating about this then is, what does that say about God and how he's portrayed in the book of Deuteronomy? It portrays God as the suzerain. It portrays God as the great king who deserves loyalty and obedience. Let me just read for you Malachi 1.14. In speaking of, in God is confronting the terrible worship that was going on in Israel at this time. And he says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Deuteronomy portrays God as the king who deserves our worship. Okay, so we have looked at the context. We've looked at the biblical context. We've looked at the cultural context. And now what we need to do is look at the purpose. This is the second thing that you need to know about the book of Deuteronomy is the purpose. And what you need to know is that this purpose is actually a threefold purpose. There is a short-term purpose, a mid-term purpose, and a long-term purpose. And we'll look at each of these. So to do this, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This is the short term. The short term purpose is this, preparation to enter and take possession of the land. This was to be the means by which they would go in and take the land. So chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Notice also down in verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. They were to be faithful to these commands so that they could go in 
and take the land that the Lord had promised them. All right, we see the midterm purpose in verses 6 through 8. And this was to fulfill their national purpose. They were supposed to be a representative people. They were supposed to be a faithful witness to a watching world. And notice how this comes about. In keeping these commandments, notice in verse 6, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? As they would faithfully obey the commands here in this law, the rest of the world would look at them and say, they're different. Look at their God. Their God is great. Their God is awesome. Their God is glorious. And I submit to you, the church has the same uh, goal in obeying the commands of Scripture. People ought to be able to see our lives as we are faithfully obeying Scripture and say, they're different. That, that God is great. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be confrontation. People are going to hate the message. But there should be a measure of obedience and difference in our lives in the same way for Israel. So they were supposed to be a representative people. They were supposed to be a faithful witness to a watching world. And then finally, there is a long-term goal of Deuteronomy that spans centuries and millennia. And this is ultimately to lead to Christ. Deuteronomy should drive us to Christ. And it does this in a few ways. Number one, the law was intentionally temporary at the, outside, at, at the outset. It was not meant to go on forever. The law was intentionally temporary. Secondly, it revealed man's inability to obey God without divine enablement. It shows the sinfulness of man because man cannot keep God's law without his help. And then finally, it points to the need of a new covenant. So let's look at some passages here to look through this. The first thing I want to, to demonstrate is that the law was intentionally temporary at the outset. So let's go to Deuteronomy 10, uh, 12 through 16. <clears throat> this is right before God gives them all these really specific laws. Okay? So right before this, he is going to tell them in Deuteronomy 10, chapter 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his love, set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. And notice verse 16, the command that is based on his election of them, his choosing of them, his love of them. Notice what they were supposed to respond with. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. 
Look at all that I've done for you. Circumcise your heart and don't be stubborn. Okay, so we've got that command there. And then he's going to give, him, give Israel all these laws all the way through chapter uh, 26. And then he's going to make mention of the curses and the blessings that would come upon them if they either obeyed or, uh, or, or disobeyed the covenant. And what's amazing is God knows that the people of Israel would not be able to obey this covenant. Moses knew that the people would not be able to obey the covenant. And here we are right at the outset giving it. And already they're saying, this is going to fail, even though it's a brand new covenant that they're uh, uh, giving here. So notice in verse, uh, chapter 30, verses 1 through 6, and he's going to describe that, look, you're going to fail, and all these curses are going to come upon you. But there will be a time when I will bring you back. And notice what it says. We'll just go to verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Notice the similarity of language. So he starts off in chapter 10, before he gets to all the specific stipulations, and he says, circumcise your hearts. You have a responsibility to circumcise your hearts and don't be stubborn. But then in verse 30, what does he say? You're not going to be able to. I will circumcise your heart. The old covenant, the Mosaic law, was never able to circumcise the heart. It was never able to produce righteousness. It was never able to produce regeneration. That is something that God must do in the heart of the believer. And so the old covenant, the Mosaic law, was never meant to be uh, uh, forever. It was never meant to be perpetual. It was always intentionally temporary. We could also look in, uh, flip the page to Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 through 29. And this is Moses speaking here, 24 through 29. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. Verse 27, For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I've commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. So what does the law do? It shows the stubbornness of the heart of man. It shows man's inability to please God. Man cannot please God without God doing a work in the heart of man. You can also look even within the Old Testament, pointing to the need of a new covenant, you can look at, uh, we won't turn there, but Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, speaking of the new covenant in which God would truly do a work in the heart. He would do a work. And then we can also see 
In Galatians 3, 19 through 27, again, we won't turn there, but it speaks explicitly to the purpose of the law and, and the length of the law, the duration of the law. It says it was put in place until Christ came. It was intentionally temporary, and it was given because of transgressions. It was given to be our guardian. That word is paedagogos. It's the idea of a disciplinarian, someone who would follow along the air uh, and, and smack him if he did something wrong and keep him within bounds until the time set by his father in which he would become heir of everything. That was the law. It set up rules and guidelines, and guess what? Not all of those rules and guidelines stay whenever the son becomes an heir. Some of those things are simply for that time and for that purpose. And that was the law. It disciplined us. It disciplined Israel. And so it led us to Christ. It led us to faith in the work of Christ. So let me bring this down to us. What the law demonstrates is that you are utterly unable to please God. And some of you might not think that's that big of a deal. Here's the problem, though. As we saw, Yahweh is king, and he demands your devotion. You are under divine obligation to give glory to God. And some might think, is this harsh? Perhaps unloving? Perhaps every fiber of your being cries out, who is this God who thinks he has a right to my life? If you have such a response, it doesn't mean that you're against the idea of a God in general. It means that you want to be God. It means that you want the world and everything in it to be subservient to your desires, to your pride, to your glory. That is sin. We are not God. We cannot create and sustain worlds by the word of our mouth. We can't make the trees quake before us. We can't make the seas scatter before our presence. We can't make the Leviathan come and bow down before us. We're dust. And what is dust that we ought to speak against God Almighty? Do not be deceived. It is no noble task to rage against the divine, for he is the source of all that is good, all that is right, all that is beautiful, all that is lovely, and all that is holy. All we do is simply demonstrate our repugnance when we seek to be God. If you remember C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle, some of you do. Um, I don't even remember the donkey's name, but uh, because of the, the monkey, the donkey puts on the skins of the lion and he's put forward as Aslan. And it's a ridicule. It's a mockery. When we try to be God, it's more foolish than that. And it's more foolish than saying our braying, the braying of a donkey is the roar of a lion. It's foolishness. Um, a student, a fellow student uh, of mine said something in our preaching class this last uh, semester, and it stuck with me. He said, don't wear your own glory. You look terrible in it. Recognize that God made you to serve him and that your greatest joy and satisfaction is in service and obedience to him. The problem is what? We are unable to please God without him doing a work in our heart. That's why we need 
Christ. That's why we need the new covenant. That's why we need something better than the Mosaic law. We need Christ. We need his sacrifice. We need him to do a work. We need his death, his burial, his resurrection. We need the spirit of God to stir us to life. We were dead and yet he brought us to life. That is what we need. And if you are still dead in your sins, look to Christ, repent of your sins, trust the Lord, and give him glory. Bow the knee to him. Some of us need that reminder even after we've become believers. We fail so often. So often the world pulls us away. We have need to go back to the Lord, bow the knee once again. So we've looked at the context and the purpose of Deuteronomy. And now, finally, what we need to know is how to apply Deuteronomy and the law. So that's kind of two different, two different ideas here. First, Deuteronomy, the book, and then also the Mosaic law. How do we apply this to our life? And so this is the third need to know of the book of Deuteronomy, application. Because this is kind of a, it can be a complicated uh, topic. <clears throat> there are some people who say we need to go, uh, back to the law completely. It, basically, that Christians are completely uh, obligated to keep all the laws. Um, and then there are some people who kind of go the opposite extreme and just say, that's Old Testament stuff. We don't even really need to bother looking at it or reading it. So what I'd like to do is try to give us some foundational considerations. What are some things that we need to know? How, how can we kind of work through this topic? So let's uh, look at this. <clears throat> Number one, the first foundational consideration of how do we apply this to our life is this. Uh, the law was given to the nation of Israel for a specific time and purpose. And we've already looked at that to some degree, right? Uh, in Galatians, we saw that it was intentionally temporary. We saw that it was given to all Israel. But then listen to this. It was not intended to regulate the practices of the nations per se. This is really interesting. It was a law specifically for Israel. It was not necessarily binding upon the nations of that time. And so uh, to illustrate this, go to Deuteronomy 14.21. This is an interesting passage. <clears throat> because it demonstrates that something was sinful for Israel, but would not be sinful for uh, someone who is not Israel. So 14.21, notice it says, "You, uh, if y'all are there, 1421, you shall not eat anything that has died naturally. Would it have been a sin for an Israelite to eat something that had died naturally? Yes. But notice what it says. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You're supposed to be a different people. Now, it's not necessarily morally sort of absolutely wrong to eat something that has died naturally, but for Israel it was sin. They were to be a holy nation. And so that's part of what the law is about. It's to regulate Israel's practice. Now, we'll get to some other considerations here as well. Okay, so that's the first consideration. The second consideration is this. The law is an indivisible unity. Okay, the law is seen as a whole unit. And this, this may get some pushback. But I'll try to be careful with this. But it, it cannot be divided into three categories. 
we can go back to the law and we can see that some of them deal with moral things, some of them deal with civil matters, and some of them deal with ceremonial matters like uh, sacrifices and whatnot. We can go back and we can see that, but the scripture never talks about it in those categories. It always talks about the law as a unit, always as a unit. And so uh, one passage to look at here is James 2, 9 through 11. So if you'll turn there real quick. James 2, 9 through 11. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit murder, or if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So he is not describing you become a transgressor of a specific law, like as in one of the laws within the Mosaic Covenant. But he says, you have become a transgressor of the whole thing. You transgress and you commit adultery, you're a transgressor of the law. Right? The law is the line. And you have transgressed. You have stepped over it. It's not a bunch of different little bitty laws. It's one law. And so it's seen as an uh, indivisible unit. Okay? So now we're, we're kind of going through this. So the law was given for Israel, specific time and purpose. Number two, the law is an indivisible unity. Number three, the whole Mosaic law has come to its fulfillment and end in Christ. And believers are no longer under law. So believers are no longer under law. It's come to its end and its fulfillment in Christ. So uh, turn to Romans. We'll go to Romans chapter 6, and we'll, we'll see this. Romans 6, 14, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Continue on. Flip the page to go to chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Because this is what the law does in 4 through 6. 7, 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. So you don't belong to the law, you belong to Christ, who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, notice what, they, what happened. They were aroused by the law while they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law. You and I are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. <coughs> Excuse me. And then go to Romans 10.4.
Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then uh, we won't turn there, but uh, Hebrews 7.18, you can write that down, and Hebrews 8.6-7 says much of the same thing, that we are under the new covenant, not the old covenant. And the new covenant has its own kind of law. That's the law of Christ. We are not under the law of Moses. Okay, so now we say that. So can we just ignore the book of Deuteronomy? Can we just ignore the, the whole Mosaic law? Well, no, because here's the fourth foundational consideration. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for all those things. So we know it's useful. We know it's God-breathed. We know it's inspired. So then the question becomes, well, then how do we read this? And so that's uh, what we'll turn to now in the fifth consideration. And uh, with this, I, th- I think this is important too, because there's only a small portion uh, that people get hung up on. So we'll start from we'll start from the top. So number five here is there are differences in the presentation of information within the law. So not everything is the exact same in the law. Okay. So let's walk through this. In some cases, there are statements about God, about His desires, about His plans, about His character. All right, so just one example, Deuteronomy 4, 31. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 4, 31. For the Lord, your God, is a merciful God. Is that not true anymore, simply because we're in the new covenant, not the old covenant? No, of course not. God is a merciful God. It's simply making a statement about who God is. So there are a lot of things in the book of Deuteronomy, in the law, that have things very similar to this. And for those, guess what? It's a direct one-to-one. We can see that and we can say God is a merciful God. That's very applicable. And you think about all the things that you should be responding, all the ways that you should be responding to the Lord because he's merciful. Okay, so there are those kinds of things. You can see it also in uh, chapter 4, uh, 39, but All right, but then we also see the revelation of God's character within the narrative. And you can jot this down, Deuteronomy 8, 2 to 3, where it describes what God was doing with the nation of Israel in leading them through the wilderness and giving them manna. He was teaching them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so that is still true. It's revealing something about God within the story, within the narrative. Those things are still true. Okay, Uh, but then thirdly, some commands within the Mosaic law are true before, during, and after the law of Moses. An easy one is murder, right? You can look back at Genesis 9, and you can see that murder is wrong. You can look within Deuteronomy chapter 5, murder is wrong. You can look at the New Testament, murder is wrong. And so that's not something that's specific to the law of Moses. It was included within the law of Moses, and so it's still true, because guess what? Before and after the law, it's still true. And it's still binding. So there are those things. And then the, the last category, though, would be all those commandments in the law that are specifically for Israel and for under the Mosaic law. So this one example let's look at is uh, Deuteronomy 22.8. This is a fun one. Deuteronomy 22.8, and it says, 
when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So the question then becomes, well, what do we do with passages like this where it's giving a command that's clearly for Israel for that time and for that purpose, and it was based on how they built their houses and what they did with their houses, right? People would go up there and sit up there. And so what was the parapet for? Well, it's that way they don't fall off the edge and die and you be held responsible for it. So for those types of things, here's what I would suggest for how do we apply the law to our own lives. It is to see God's wisdom in these laws. It is to see God's wisdom. And I would say that there's basically two steps to this. What is the principle? Determine what the principle of it is. In this case, what is it? Well, it's protecting life, right? So, you know, and, and then the second part of this would be what is its application in our own context? And so, who knows? Maybe that's you've got a swimming pool and you need to build a fence around it. Is that way... Kids from the neighborhood don't jump in and drown. Maybe that's uh, an application. But you see the, the sort of the steps. You find out what the principle is. It was there for a reason. We're not under law as to hold that as binding upon us. We don't have to go out and build a parapet on our roof, but we can see the principle. We can see God's wisdom in that and then seek to find how to apply that uh, within our own context. And what's fascinating is that that was actually the purpose of the law anyways. So Deuteronomy and Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus contain a whole bunch of laws, right? A whole bunch of commandments. But did it cover every single area of life? No. It would be pretty impressive if 613 commands could cover all of life's intricacies. And that's what the judges of Israel were supposed to do. They were supposed to read the law and then when situations came up, they would pass judgment upon the, the case based on their reading of the word of God. And they were to apply what God had written and apply it to the particular situation. That's what they were supposed to do uh, in Israel. And I, I think that that is uh, wise for us to do today uh, as well. So, we have looked at the context, we have looked at the purpose, we have looked at the application, how do we apply Deuteronomy and the um, law to our lives. And so, as we move forward, I would encourage us to um, be reading the book of Deuteronomy and not pushing it aside as irrelevant. If we keep these things in mind, I, I trust that we will be encouraged, we'll be challenged, uh, by the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm looking forward to going through Deuteronomy in the next uh, several weeks. And ultimately, what I, I want to bring out is the law pushes us to Christ. Amen. The law pushes us to Christ. You cannot obey the Lord on your own. You must have divine enablement. And if you are an unbeliever, you are sinning against the Lord by not giving him loyalty, by not giving him devotion. And if you're a believer and you're holding things back in your life, you're sinning against the Lord by not giving him devotion and loyalty. So we look to Christ. We look to his forgiveness. We look to his enablement. We look to the Spirit. We look to God for help. With that, let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time. Um, 
There was a lot of information, but Lord, I pray that as we went through this, you will take the truths from your word, apply them to the hearts of those here. May we remember that you are the great king. You deserve loyalty and devotion in every single aspect of our lives. Lord, may we remember just how sinful, how stubborn we are. We thank you so much for Christ. We thank you that though we stored up wrath for ourselves, Christ took it all. Lord, may we be quick to repent. May we always be looking to the cross. May we, may we be trusting in Christ. Lord, increase our faith, increase our obedience, increase our love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.